Hi, I'm Michael Hawk, and welcome to Nature's Archive Podcast, where I interview some of the most interesting and creative people on the forefront of conservation, ecology, birding, and environmental education. If you have a fascination with the natural world, this podcast is for you. My promise to you is that you'll not only learn what my guests have accomplished, but also how and why. And I also promise that you'll learn plenty of fascinating things about the nature that surrounds us. So give it a listen. And if you truly care about the environment and enjoyed what you heard, please take a moment to subscribe, leave feedback on Apple Podcasts or your favorite service, and share this episode with a friend. Thank you. My guest today is Tony Iwane. Tony is Outreach and Community Coordinator for iNaturalist. He's an environmental educator, contributor to Bay Nature Magazine, a photographer, and just an all-around interesting and knowledgeable naturalist. As a key staff member for iNaturalist and one of its earliest members, Tony gives us an insider's view of iNaturalist, what it is, and how it's used. Tony has also curated iNaturalist Observation of the Day for the past five years and shares a selection of some of the most noteworthy observations from the catalog, including a serendipitous identification of an uncommon southern hemisphere hoodwinker sunfish in California, one of the most rare American mammals, a Colombian weasel that was photographed sitting on an outhouse toilet, and it's still the only recorded observation of the species on iNaturalist. Tony describes iNaturalist as both a social network for those interested in nature and also a platform for community science. As a platform, we discuss how easy it is to engage with experts and some of the creative and unique projects that people have created. In fact, a couple of our past guests have talked about some of these projects, including Marav Vonchak and the roadkill monitoring program for newts that she's done at Lexington Reservoir, and Charlie Eisman with this project that tracks leaf miners. We also discuss how iNaturalist has helped many people find purpose and focus during the pandemic. And of course, we also learn about Tony's personal journey that led him from counseling to the world of nature. So without further delay, Tony Iwane. All right. So Tony, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, thanks, Michael. I've been, like I just told you, I've been main, mainlining your podcast and they're really, really good. So I feel pretty uh, privileged to be here. Really appreciate it. I appreciate it. So, you know, one of our primary focuses today is really iNaturalist. And, you know, maybe why don't we just start there? I think a lot of my listeners already know a little bit about iNaturalist, but perhaps in your own words, can you tell me a little bit about what it is? Yeah, so iNaturalist is a joint initiative of the California Academy of Sciences and the National Geographic Society. Uh, iNaturalist is really a social network, and it's a way for people to share their observations of uh, organisms or recent evidence of organisms. So that could be like a bird nest. It could be a track scat. I have shared an observation of a Portuguese man of war sting on my arm, uh, which was evidence of a recent encounter with an organism. That's kind of the, the core building block of iNaturalist are these observations. So an observation we define as a record of an encounter with an organism or recent evidence of an organism at a time and place. Um, it's kind of a subtle difference than the actual recording of an organism. We record the encounters. So if you and I were on a hike and we saw a rattlesnake on the trail, both of our observations would be valid on iNaturalist because we're two separate observers encountering this organism at this time and place. So there's kind of that personal aspect to iNaturalist. Obviously, there are you know a kajillion Facebook groups where you can share like photos of what you saw, and those are really useful. But what makes iNaturalist, I think, really interesting is that you know we focus on this observation, and it has this, this location, this date, this time, and then we allow anyone else on iNaturalist to add an identification to it. And this identification is attached to our taxonomic database, to the tree of life. It allows people from around the world to you know, communicate with each other through these IDs. So even if, you know, if we might have different common names for it, we're going to know that we're each referring to the same organism when we um, add an ID to, the, to an observation. So I think that's really important. 
And it also just allows for all of these observations to kind of become really filterable data points that anyone can use. Every one of these, these observations, I like to think of an observation as really the start of a discussion. It's, it's me saying, I look at what I saw and here's where I saw it and here's when I saw it and what do you think? From these discussions and from these interactions, we generate this incredible database of, I think we have, I think I checked this morning about 56 million, what we call verifiable observations on a naturalist. Um, and we have, you know, different ways that you can filter those. And so, you know, if you're a scientist, you could, you know, filter out observations that you're interested in, you can download it and you can do whatever you want with that data. But also, you know, if you're a layperson and you just want to like look at photos of, you know, a certain species, you know, you could do that as well. Or if you're planning a trip, like I was supposed to go to Australia um, this September, we you know, obviously couldn't make it. I could look at the areas I was interested in, look at what was seen in, in those areas in September and get an idea of what to look for. And so I think there's just so many ways that, that these observations can be really valuable for a whole host of people. I think what's really interesting is that a lot of people call iNaturalist a citizen science platform, but I think we don't really think of it as just that. Uh, to me, that's kind of a narrow definition. And just, I like to quote um, from, uh, iNaturalist was originally a master's project at Berkeley and uh, they're kind of final report on iNaturalist included a really cool quote that said that iNaturalist is interested in facilitating a lifestyle of data collection and encouraging data contribution to the self-interest of an avid hobbyist. And so what, what we're hoping is that people, that this becomes a habit of yours, that, that once you start using iNaturalist and once you start sharing your observations and discussing them, that it will become kind of a, a daily thing, that when you're outside, you're going to be looking for Oh, look at that cool lichen on the on the on this tree, or look at this spider web at the bus stop, and helping you just engage with engage with nature that way. You know, our, our primary goal is to help people engage with nature. Our secondary goal is to generate scientific data from the encounters and observations and discussions that people have on iNaturalist. So we are really interested in in just helping people stop, look, notice, and ask questions about what they see, and just make that connection to what's around them. And I think that's really kind of what guides us. So sorry for that long-winded answer. I think what's interesting is that, is that it's a very malleable thing, that there's this platform, you can share observations, you can discuss them, it's attached to the tree of life. You can use it for citizen science, like um, you, know, you interviewed uh, Marav Von Schenk a few weeks ago, and she and other people in the South Bay are using it to collect data on you know, newts being uh, run over on the road. And that's not iNaturalist telling people to collect that data. This, this is iNaturalist providing a platform where one person can talk to other people and use it as a recording platform and discussion platform. And so I think there's a lot of like, there's a lot of interaction among the community. You know, we are not directing people to do things. We are providing a place for them to do it and a framework for them to, um, to discuss uh, nature. I do think you read my mind a little <laughs> bit because uh, I... I was interested when you started to define what iNaturalist is, that you started with it being sort of a social network. And uh, that did beg the question, well, what about the citizen science? So I think you addressed that really well. And then as a platform, I, I think that's one of the great things about it is it doesn't sort of pigeonhole the way people use it. It allows a lot of creativity in how it's used. And it took me a while. I uh, My approach to iNaturalist entering 2020 was from a perspective of birding and eBird. eBird has a much more directed use case where you're trying to count number of species of birds and you're really trying to identify two species. With iNaturalist, I think it's really trying to help people 
open their eyes to everything they don't know about as opposed to the species they can identify, which took me a while to kind of wrap my head around. Yeah, I think that's a really good way of, of putting it. You know, and, and we, you know, we talk to people at eBird. We use eBird. I love eBird. It's just they're just different platforms. And so I think, you know, some people will come will come to INAF from eBird and say, like, you know, do you guys want us to record every bird I see in my feeder every day? And, you know, our, our kind of response is usually like, do you find that enjoyable? You, do, you don't have to feel obligated to do to do something you don't want to do. You know, if you find it enjoyable to document everything you see on the same trail every day, that's that's fine. If you just want to document the new things you see and share those, that's also fine. So it's really about helping people enjoy and deepen their time in nature rather than us kind of directing people in a certain way. We'll get into some of the interesting projects. You mentioned Marab's new tracking project, which is really opening a lot of people's eyes to a yeah. problem right here, you know, local to us. So we'll, we'll circle back to that. But you mentioned 56 million verifiable observations, which is just yeah. an incredible number. So I imagine there's a lot of additional observations in the database as well that aren't verified yet. And when I was browsing around on the about page on INAT, it looked like, I mean, under the staff section, there's only something like eight people listed. Is that accurate? <laughs> like the, this whole thing is run by eight people? Uh, yeah. I just want to, just to clarify. So a verifiable observations means that the observation has a date, a location. It has media evidence, either sound or audio or both. And it is it has not been marked as not wild. So it doesn't mean that they have been verified by the community. It just means that in, in INAT's view, there's data there that can be that can be evaluated by the community. Okay. So the opposite of verifiable would be a casual observation? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Which, you know, I think there's probably ways we can improve that term. Um, but right now that's kind of the those are kind of the terminology. Um, as far as like the INAT team, yeah, there's um, there's eight people who are full-time employees, and then we have a independent contractor who's been with us for years, who's a bit of a digital nomad, who just travels the world doing coding, and he works on our um, Android app. So we have a dedicated Android uh, developer, but otherwise, yeah, that's it. But you know, I, you're probably gonna hear me continually um, emphasizing the community of iNaturalist. You know, we have thousands of users who help people add identifications, and that's just, you know, an incredibly important part of iNaturalist. And we also have, you know, what we call site curators and they help maintain our taxonomy. Um, you know, taxonomy is always changing. They help kind of update that. They can help update conservation statuses and, and other parts of the site. And so I think, you know, without their work, you know, it we would not be able to function at the scale we're at. So I really want to kind of give uh, a lot of credit to them. There are some people out there. It's, it's crazy when you look at the number of identifications they've supplied you know, yeah. tens of thousands to hundred thousand plus in some cases. <laughs> uh, and, and I noticed that like, like Marav is another example. I keep mentioning Marav and uh, another, yeah, yeah. another uh, person I interviewed recently, Charlie Iceman, they're both listed as curators. Is that what you mean by a site curator? It's someone who's going in there and also managing the observations and helping to identify things. No. So, so anyone can add an, an identification and all identifications are weighted exactly the same. In, we have, like, we have like an, al an algorithm that takes every identification on an observation into account and it kind of evaluates those and comes up with what we call a community taxon. I have a background in, in, in snake uh, education, so I'm probably going to use snakes a lot as examples. But, um, you know, so if you and I if, I, if I saw a snake and I called it a rattlesnake and you called it a, a garter snake, then the community taxon would be, you know, snakes, because that's kind of the taxon that can encompass those, that disagreement. You know, we do agree that it's a snake. So we do have an algorithm that kind of 
takes into account all the IDs and we and it spits out a community taxon. And again, again those are all weighted the same. The curators are able to actually go into our database, our, our kind of taxonomic database, and they can like add a new taxon or they can maybe split a taxon if, you know, we try to follow certain global authorities as much as we can. Mm-hmm. You know, no one's ever going to agree on on everything about taxonomy, but we try to follow like a global open source taxonomy. Like we, like for birds, we use the Clements bird, li- bird list, which anyone can look at and evaluate. And so even if you and I might disagree on the name of something, you'll at least know that on iNaturalist, this name means this because it's attached to this external authority. So basically the site curators can, can go in and maintain our taxonomy to, to keep up to date with those authorities where they're relevant and also where they're not relevant, they can just add a taxon or taxa, or they can remove them or merge them and stuff. Got it. So when there's a lump or a split, they go in and yeah. they adjust for that. And Okay, so it's it sounds like it's largely coincidental then that some of these curators are also such high contributors. It's just because they have such a strong interest in their area. So they're yeah. not only maintaining the, the taxon, but then they're helping people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I would love to ask about the AI and ML, but perhaps that's for another day. It's it's a fascinating subject. Yeah, it was. I remember when. So Alex, on our team, is our iOS developer. But I think I don't know all the details of the story. But I think he had taken some classes on machine learning, and we started working with some people from Visipedia. Grant Van Horn was, I think, one of the major contributors about how we could maybe train a model. I think a lot of people use AI. We we, we prefer machine learning because it's it's a bit more specific to what we do. Tried on a bunch of different uh, lady beetles. And, and train a model, see if it can recognize different ones, and, and, and it could. And so we started training a model on everything on iNaturalist, and it's been pretty interesting. I think it's definitely, it definitely has its upsides and its downsides, and it's kind of something we're you know, just iterating on as it goes. One thing, you know, I don't know the technical parts of it, but I think what's, what's cool about it is that it's allowed us to kind of branch out and make a separate app called Seek. I don't know if you're aware of Seek by iNaturalist. So like I said, our, our primary goal is to help people engage with nature. And not everyone can or wants to join a social network or interact with other people or wait for confirmation. And so we kind of created a separate app called Seek by iNaturalist, which is very privacy friendly. So kids can use it. You got to remember that every iNaturalist observation is a public record of where you were at a certain time. And so like uh, no one under 13 can have their own iNaturalist account without their parents' permission. And, you know, and obviously if you're privacy conscious, it's, it's an issue. We created an app called Seek that, that leverages our machine learning model and made it into sort of a game where literally you can open up the app and you can put the camera on a plant or an insect or something. And it'll start just giving you live ID suggestions. And then you get like badges if, you know, if you get like, you know, X number of plants or X number of insects. And so for someone who maybe is more casual and doesn't want to get into taxonomy, doesn't want to discuss things with people, doesn't want to share where they are. They can still like engage with nature around them and learn about what they're seeing. And it also, I think, answers the question that most people want to know is, will this, what is a spider in my house and will it kill me? <laughs> um, <laughs> and the answer is almost always no, because spiders are pretty harmless. But I think it kind of scratches that itch and allows, allows us to help a totally different audience engage with nature who may not want to, you know, go full eye net. And I think that's really cool. So for whatever reason, and, and I can't put my brain back in my you know, train of thought from years ago, but I, I played around with iNaturalist probably about four years ago. And for some reason, it didn't just, it didn't stick with me. Earlier this year, I was starting to engage more with our local community of docents and field guides. 
And I heard a lot of people talking about Seek, you know, the app that you just mm. mentioned. So I thought I'd give Seek a try. And yeah, like there's virtually no barrier of entry for it. It's, it's super simple. And it does give you those incentives, those badges. And I could see where yeah. that would be helpful. And what I noticed is even among people who are pretty advanced in the world of being a naturalist, a lot of them just prefer to use Seek because it is so simple. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I was going to mention something that I, I noticed that in iNaturalist, you can obscure your location when you submit observations. So yeah. for people kind of on the fence privacy-wise, I wanted to point that out, that you can set it up so the general public doesn't know where your home is, you know, if you're, if you're making observations. Yeah, I've been doing that, you know, since since the pandemic started, I've been doing a lot of walks around the neighborhood. And so I obscure everything around here. Um, probably don't need to, but it makes me feel a little bit better. Yeah. Yeah, me too. So how did you get started with iNaturalist in the first place? I, I saw in your bio that you've been a user for a very long time, but uh, I think you actually officially joined the team later. It helps when you've been friends with the co-founder for 21 years. So <laughs> um, yeah, so I, I went to, I'm from Hawaii originally. Um, I went to Williams College in Western Massachusetts. And along with three other guys from my high school, one of my friends from high school was living in the same freshman dorm as Kenichi Ueda, who was the co-founder of Our Naturals, and he and I became friends. Um, and I'd always been interested in nature, but not to the extent that Kenichi was. Uh, but you know, I was from a young age. I was just I was into spiders. I was keep, I would keep spiders at home. I would catch lizards. I'm gonna kind of go on a tangent here, but now that I'm um, a naturalist, when I go back to Hawaii, I'm like, oh, everything I grew up with and everything I saw is non-native, <laughs> pretty much, which is kind of sad. But you know, it, it, catching a green anole or catching many green anoles, I should say, was a great experience for me, whether or not they're native. We also used to open up our compost bin, and a white rump shama, which we called the shama thrush back then, he became obsessed with it, and he would come in, he would sit on the edge of it, and just eat insects and take them back to his nest. So much so that in the morning, he would actually come in the lid of it and chirp at us until we opened it up. And those were those were kind of like seminal encounters in my life that just made me love nature kind of forever. Anyway, uh, I think Kenichi, sometime in college or after college, he kind of blogged about this idea he had. I think he used the Japanese word modi, which I think means forest, as a way for people to share their observations. And then around 2005, I was still living in Hawaii. He wrote like a document kind of outlining you know, what it could be. There's actually like a, some sort of record of me editing it on Dropbox in 2005. So I've been involved for 15 years in one way, shape or form. And then um, he went to the Berkeley School of Information Science and I was a test user of iNaturalist when it was a master's project there. And then, yeah, I signed up. I think I'm user number 28. <laughs> so nice. uh, it's been a part of my life for a long, long time. That's how I got involved in using iNat. I, when I first moved to the Bay Area in 2006, I was a, a I became a group home counselor, which was a very intense job. But every so often, I'd, I'd take the kids out on hikes, and I'd even I'd take them to Mount Diablo to look at tarantulas. And I was like, well, I really, really like this. I really like exploring nature, and I love kids. So I ended up becoming an environmental educator in San Francisco. Then I started running that company's social media, and I made some videos because I've always been interested in filmmaking. And around 2015, INAC got some extra money working with the National Park Service for their Centennial Bio Blitz, and they needed someone to make some videos and do their social media. And so they kind of hired me as a contractor. Once that was over, you know, INAC was you know continuing to grow, and so I became kind of the technical support, community moderator, social media kind of guy, and then became an employee a few years ago. 
It's been a long road with iNaturalist. <laughs> Got it. It's been, it's been amazing to watch it grow from this little seed of an idea to this kind of global thing that what's really cool is that iNaturalist growth is almost entirely organic. Um, you know, people will find it and they're like, they're like the right people who know other naturalists in their community and they can get it started in that area. And, you know, but there's nothing we do. I, I feel like our job is to make iNaturalist as, as easy to use as possible for these kind of champions to kind of grow, to grow their own community of, of iNaturalist. There's, you know, there's a guy in... I've met a few times, and he's a wonderful person named Cheng Tao Lin. He goes by Mutalisp on iNaturalist in Taiwan. And he basically he translated iNaturalist. He sent us a bunch of documents to get common names and conservation statuses in Taiwan to us. And he just did, he lectured all throughout Taiwan about using iNaturalist. And he basically built this community in Taiwan. It's one of our most vibrant communities. And it's just, uh, there's nothing we could, we couldn't do that. But we hopefully allowing people to do that. And it's, it's been magical to watch, to watch it grow. <laughs> I've seen in the Silicon Valley community this commentary that all you need is a thousand fervent fans. If you can get a yeah. thousand fans, <laughs> then you have your base and they're going to be out there telling everybody else about why they love this thing so much. And it sounds like you're way beyond that now. Yeah, it's been, it's been pretty remarkable. And it's very humbling, I would say. So you, you said something that's caught my ear and part of your quote was, or now that you consider yourself a naturalist. Yeah, and yeah. as you were telling me about your background, you know, you were... Um, a counselor at this group home and you started doing environmental education. How did you make that jump? Was it just because you were leading these hikes and you started to self-educate or was there some other factor that kind of gave you those skills? It was partly that. I had volunteered at the Hawaii Nature Center years ago as well after college and I really enjoyed that. The job I was in as a counselor was very, very emotionally taxing. And, you know, after about four years of that, I decided it was time to move on. I ended up becoming a, an educator with tree frog tracks in San Francisco, where I, we, I go to after school programs, bring like a reptile and amphibian, do science projects or, or nature projects, and then also lead summer camps. Uh, there, there's really no, no formal training. It was just like learning from other people and, and knowing kids also, you know, once you kind of know kids in general, you can kind of bring your own passions to it and know how to communicate with them. Um, and that's kind of how I began doing that. And it just made me happy to, to watch people just kind of become more aware about nature and, you know, maybe just get that little spark in them that'll that hopefully continue for the rest of their lives. Whether or not it becomes a major part of their life or not, you know, hopefully it'll, it'll be there. I think that's really important. Yeah, I think that's something not to lose sight of. A lot of times I find myself wanting people to immediately be interested and engaged. And sometimes you're just planting a seed that maybe that won't sprout for 10 years or, you know, some, sometime down the road. Uh, so I, uh, I have to remind myself of that a lot. Yeah. I remember like as a kid, my parents would always tell me to say, please. And thank you. And my brain wasn't ready for it. You know, when I was really young. And then at some point I was like, Oh, this is a really important thing to do. And every time they told me that it was really, they meant it. And now I understand. And, you know, that's kind of how we learned. And I'm especially kind of contrarian. So I usually push back immediately. And then, then a little while later, I'm like, Oh, that, that's totally cool. And that's totally right. And I'm going to start incorporating that into my life. Yeah. Make it make sense to you. Given that story that you just told about your progression and landing at iNaturalist in your current role, like how do you summarize when you have a new acquaintance and they ask you, what do you do for work? What do you tell them? That's a good question. Um, I try to tell them what iNaturalist is, which as I said, is kind of an evolving thing because sometimes people don't get it. Sometimes they do. Um, I'm someone who tries to avoid easy explanation. So a lot of people say it's like Facebook for nature. It's like Shazam for nature. And I, <laughs> I kind of don't feel comfortable saying that, even though I think those are good ways to, to get things started. So I'll just say I work for a website 
uh, and an app that allows people to share what they see and, and help get identifications and help other people who are interested in nature. And, you know, then I'll say I do technical support and I, I do our social media. I, I actually don't generally get into it too much um, at first, but, you know, if someone's interested, I'll definitely kind of go more into that. Yeah. Uh, sorry, not, not too exciting. <laughs> and what's interesting, though, is when, when you say iNaturalist is a joint initiative of the California Academy of Sciences and the National Geographic Society, you know, when you, when you mention those names and people know them, then, then they start making these associations, sometimes like wrong ones. And whenever I mention National Geographic, they're like, oh, my gosh, like you see you make nature videos. And I'm like, no, no, like it's actually a huge organization, does all kinds of other things. And, and I don't really do that kind of stuff. But it does kind of it does kind of help orient people, I think, sometimes. So one of the things that you do among the different hats that you wear, being that it's a small organization, uh, is some of the outreach efforts. And I've seen you active in a lot of different ways. And of course, just just on the platform itself, I snooped a little bit and saw that you have 28,000 observations and 55,000 identifications helping other people. But then you also manage the observation of the day. Can you tell me a little bit about what that is and how it works? Yeah, I think that was started just before I joined in 2015 as just kind of a way, you know, I mean, a lot of organizations do this. Well, they'll just, they'll just post something new every day just to have kind of like something out there, financials. And we were so much smaller back then. I think it just started as a way to, to just kind of generate content for social media and highlight, you know, something cool on iNaturalist that people maybe have not heard about iNaturalist. They didn't know what it's about. So every day, I think I've done it for almost every day for the last five plus years, I wake up in the morning and I go through recently uploaded observations that have been favorited by the iNaturalist community. And I go through those and I just try and find one to post on our social media accounts on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. There are far more cool observations than we could ever post, you know, one per day. So I think it's, it's kind of just me going through and like if something catches my eye, because, you know, I figure people are going to be, you know, scrolling through their, their social media feeds and if it, catches their, if it catches my eye, it's probably going to catch theirs. One thing's for sure is that if it catches my wife's eye, if she's like watching me, it will almost certainly do better than anything I pick. And so basically look for something that's interesting and I'll post it. And then I, it's a way, I think, for me to communicate what iNaturalist is to people who maybe don't know about it. I try to make it really diverse taxonomically because iNaturalist is, is diverse is for any living organism. I try to make it diverse geographically because I think some people think iNaturalist is just an American thing. And I especially have been trying to like use it as a way to promote maybe um, a fledgling community. If I notice like, oh, like there's a bunch of observations from like Trinidad and Tobago, which I noticed recently, I'm going to post this and it might be cool to actually make, write a story about that and kind of give them attention because they're doing really cool things. And I've also, especially over the last few years, trying to, been trying to make it a little more diverse, at least uh, observer-wise. You know, a lot of people don't use their real names or they don't use a photo of themselves on iNaturalist. But, I had, but when I first started doing this, it was a lot of, ended up being a lot of guys and a lot of like maybe North Americans and Europeans who are in Indonesia and Africa. And now like I try to, and obviously there's nothing wrong with that. I love traveling. But now I try to find observations of people who maybe live there and highlight them as well. I mean, there's so many things to highlight that it's almost impossible, <laughs> but so I have to try and restrict my, myself to, you know, just getting out the diversity of iNaturalist. And it's not supposed to be like some, you know, huge big metal, but just a cool way to, to recognize what someone posted. And for what it's worth, I, I really enjoy the observation of the day because you never know what you're going to get. At least I never know what you're going to share. And it's always interesting. And it just, it's all, it's a constant reminder that there's so much more to learn out there in the world. Yeah, and I think, you know, I, I think one time I posted kind of a cool silhouette photo of two mantids in France. 
pretty common mantis. And I think someone's like, this should be called photo of the day, not, not observation of the day. And I think, I totally understand, yeah, this isn't a special find, but it is a cool photo in a different way of, this is how someone saw this, these insects and they made a cool image of it that maybe none of us had considered before. And I think that's also really important as well because that is really about, it's not just about nature, it's about the way people see nature and the way people encounter and discuss nature. And I also, you know, we could, I could pick a, a shot made from a professional photographer with an expensive camera every day, but INAT's not really about that as well. I mean, I spent a ton of money on camera gear. <laughs> um, INAT has definitely exacerbated that, but um, you can make an amazing photo or make an amazing find with, you know, with the smartphone you have in your hand. I think that's what's so cool um, about it. One of the many cool things about iNaturalist. Right. So I like to highlight that as well. What do you consider to be a quality, this might be a loaded question, but like a quality iNaturalist observation. I know, I know you want everyone to be able to submit what they saw with whatever means they have. Uh, but if, if there was a sort of a standard to strive towards, what would that look like? It should ideally be identifiable. And this is something that, <laughs> that actually my friend, uh, my friend who's really into plants and identifying plants, it always gets after me about because I, I'm into photography in many ways for me, especially over the past year, because diversity has been so low, I've been more interested in, in working on my photography and making cool or what I think are cool photos of what I see or cool behaviors rather than anything new. Unfortunately, that usually means I will photograph a flower with like really shallow depth of field and almost no other <laughs> identifying marks on it. And, you know, I, they're like, I can get this a genus, but if you'd photograph, you know, this part of it, you know, we could get it to species. So I think it should, it should have identifiable photos or, or sounds. It should have the date, the location. It should be of a wild organism that, you know, should have the basic kind of parts of, ina of an iNaturalist observation. I think a quality one would kind of have, I mean, there's so many different metrics you could use, but I think it should have, it should maybe express some sort of personal connection you had with what you saw. You know, Kenichi Ellis talks about, you know, each iNaturalist observation represents at least a few seconds of someone considering and thinking about and noticing, you know, something that's not human that is around them. I think it should really embody that. Like I, I saw this thing and I, I didn't know what it was. Here's what I think it is. You know, here's what I saw about it. I don't think there's a really good way to, to kind of answer this um, because it is, it is very personal. I mean, obviously we would love to have more observations of a range extension or something rare that would be kind of this big obvious thing of like, this is new knowledge that people have, but even observing common things when, when those kind of observations are kind of put together in total can help us understand more about the world. So I think, I don't think it has to be rare or uncommon. I think it should be, it should just represent that you found it interesting and you wanted to share it. I really do think that um, a lot of it's ineffable. I was just going to comment as you were talking about that. I'm thinking a lot about what I've posted over the, um, over the last year. And, you know, very often, like I said, I started off thinking I needed to like get the species or at least genus for everything. And then I quickly learned that, yeah. that some organisms, you just can't. So throw yeah. that out. When you say it should be identifiable, I guess, uh, as identifiable as possible. Yeah. And you don't ever really know. Yeah, yeah. Unless you're an sure. expert in that taxa, you may not know yeah. if it's identifiable. Yeah, I know. Like for spiders, you need, you know, you have, you have to need a microscope and that's probably not going to yeah. happen. <laughs> the other thing is there are still a lot of overlooked species out there. So it, you might yeah. think it's common because it's all over the place in your backyard, but I've, I found a few of my own observations that I was astonished to see that there were only a handful of previous observations. And when I saw that, yeah. of course, I started to get nervous, like, oh, I probably misidentified this thing, but an expert would come in and, 
and say, oh, no, no, that is it. It's just we haven't had many people post them. They're, you know, they're out there, but people don't post them for some reason. So I think that that's another piece of the puzzle as well. Yeah, I think that's really interesting in that, you know, we all kind of have our, our blinders on at first. Usually we come in to study nature from kind of a gateway taxon. Uh, for me, it was like spiders and, and, and reptiles and amphibians. For many people, it's birds. For other people, it's, other people, it's plants. <laughs> I think Kenichi audited my first year of observations of the, of the day, and I think I had only picked six plants. <laughs> so I definitely had plant blindness. But the more I've used iNaturalist, I'm now photographing, you know, lichens, which I never would have given two thoughts about three years ago. And that's all because I'm using iNaturalist. I'm being exposed to people who are into those things. And also because... You don't find a snake all the time, but you, there's always lichens and plants. And I'm gonna, and I want to start learning about all these other things. And I think it, it's amazing how, and I hear this story over and over again about how people expand their kind of their vision of of what they see around them, what they notice. Absolutely. So, so the I guess my favorite taxa of the year has been surfed flies or hoverflies. I had oh, no yeah, idea yeah. there was such diversity. And uh, and you mentioned lichen, and for the photographers out there you can really get some beautiful abstract photos of lichen. Like that's just a wonderful subject. And actually maybe that's a good tie in then to some of the most surprising finds you found uh, over the years. You know, you've profiled so many five years worth of observations of the day and you, you hit on a couple, but like what really stands out to you when you, when you think back to that five year catalog? Um, do you mind if we go back really quickly to, to surfed flies? So last year I got, they invited one of us to go speak at, at UMass Boston. And so I, I ended up going, I got to meet E. Danko, Evan Dankowitz, who is the top fly identifier. Let me just, he has almost 130,000 identifications of flies on a naturalist. And, and he has wonderful identification guides yeah. as well that I'll make sure I link to in the show notes. Yeah, yeah. He's a, he's a young guy. He was still, I think, finishing college at that point, undergrad. At that point in my life, I, I was nowhere near as helpful. And he's so encouraging, and he he's created these guides for for how to identify different you know flies and hoverflies throughout North America. People like Kevin, and I, I don't want to single him out too much. Hopefully, I'm not embarrassing him. But he, he's just I met him, and he's like so generous with his knowledge and his time. And I asked him like you know what you know why are you adding all these IDs? Like you know what's your motivation? He's like I just this is knowledge that I have. It's something I'm interested in. I just want to give. And these people are clearly curious about it, and I want to just be able to help them out any way I can. It was just like this beautiful, this beautiful sentiment of what we hope INAT is about in that it's one, it's one reason we don't have a lot of gamification elephant elements on a naturalist is that we want it really to be intrinsic. Maybe it's naive. We want people to be motivated by their, by their own desire to, to maybe help others or to share what they see or to know what they, or to know, know what it is that they saw rather than like badges or, or something maybe more ephemeral that maybe won't last. I just kind of want to want to point out that INAT is driven by people like Evan and the many, many other people who just spend their time and energy being so generous in helping people out. And let, let me just jump in real quick, because I, I mentioned that was one of the taxa that really caught my eye this year. And if it weren't for him, I don't know that it would have taken off in the same way for me, because he had created these guides with field marks and photos and descriptions that really opened my eyes to how much was out there that I may not have understood at first. So uh, I think that that speaks to your point. It was a very synergistic encounter through iNaturalist yeah. now that it's done this. And I believe he worked on those with, I believe, a, a man named Caleb, who goes by you, Pupa Epops. So I want to give him credit as well. And it also shows like how how one person's passion can affect the entire iNat community. <laughs> like, 
thousands of people. Anyway, you're asking about uh, interesting finds, right? So yeah, it's it, I come across amazing finds every day. It, it's kind of it's kind of awesome. I think just a few of my favorites in New Zealand. If, a few years ago, someone posted this kind of <laughs> this kind of terrifying looking creature. It was a crab that had a chitin. A chitin is like kind of a a mollusk with these kind of like multiple overlapping shells on its back. And the chitin had totally covered the body of the crab. So it looked like a chitin that had had, that had sprouted legs and claws. And, you know, just kind of this freak find that, you know, she, she ended up calling the chitin crab. And I, stuff like that just kind of blows my mind. And I love that when you get enough people out there, you might find just crazy things like that. I'm friends with um, Christian Schwarz, who is a, a mycologist who's written a wonderful guide called Mushrooms of the Redwood Coast um, with Noah Siegel. And he... <laughs> One of his, his housemate's sister was, was in their house, and uh, she had a spider in her ear, which he was able to get out of her ear and then, of course, make an eye naturalist observation of. And I think that's a great story. <laughs> um, and I, I'm a huge spider enthusiast, and I think it's great to remind people that spiders are not out to kill us, that, you know, this was just a scared spider. Even it, it, had, it had every opportunity to bite her and him and didn't. One of our stories that, that kind of garnered international attention was this Colombian weasel. Um, I think Gizmodo ended up pretty much taking my blog post about it and, and making a little a little content about it. There was a guy, I can't remember his name right now. He actually studies snails, um, but he was he was at his, his parents' house, kind of in the country in Colombia. They had a bathroom that led out to their backyard. He opened the door to the bathroom and he, he saw a weasel in there. He closed the door, ran back to get his camera, came back, took some photos of it, and it was very scared. You know, it was musking. He took a few photos and obviously let it, let it go. And those kind of sat, sat dormant on his hard drive for years until I think he posted them to INAD in November of 2018. And he thought it was kind of their common weasel, which I think is the long-tailed weasel. And then he kind of added a comment later. And he's like, this mark is really weird. I wonder if it could be a Colombian weasel, and which is, I think, just about the most rare carnivore, carnivorean mammal in the Americas. I think it's known only from six or seven specimens. That's it. And yeah, it got identified as a Colombian weasel. It's the first, these are the first known photos of a living Colombian weasel. They wrote a paper about it. And it's this terrified weasel uh, sitting on a toilet, you know, in a bathroom in the middle of nowhere. I think it's, it speaks to the power of getting these things in front of other, other people's eyes and letting a community take a look at it and, you know, and start evaluating it. Once you kind of get these things out here, you never know what might happen to them. That's a great visual too. And it reminds me of like uh, every time I see a spider in the house now before, uh, you know, before I, you know, like my kids complain about it or whatever, I want to make sure I get a good photo, you know, before it runs yeah, away yeah, yeah. or before we put it outside or something. Yeah, 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 for sure. In California a few years ago, several people stumbled upon this dead sunfish in Santa Barbara that are washed up on the shore. And this is such a cool story because several photos were posted to iNaturalist. Everyone thought it was our common sunfish, the mola mola. And this guy in Australia, thousands of miles away from California, was like, I think it's actually this recently described sunfish called the hoodwinker sunfish. And he tagged Marianne Nygaard, who was one of the co-authors of the paper describing this new sunfish, who's actually also an iNaturalist. And she actually was like, you know, I, I think you're right, but we need some diagnostic photos. So she was able to actually communicate with some of the people who had found the fish and tell them what parts of the fish to photograph. And, you know, they went back the next day. The fish had gone out with the tide, then gone back in with the tide. They were, they were able to get those photos, and she was able to confirm that it was the sunfish. 
It was the first record of the species in the Northern Hemisphere since the late 1800s. Since that observation was kind of posted and publicized, it was on NPR and BBC News and everything. I think there's now five observations of this species in California, including one, an old photo someone had taken even a few years before this one of a living one off of Monterey. To me, that's like a perfect example of how this kind of global network can work, can, can be used to make new discoveries and, and, and engage people. I wonder how many people have actually seen a hoodwinker sunfish and they just thought it was a mola mola and yeah, yeah. didn't look critically at it. But now they know to, to look. Yeah, it, it's, it's hard to say. But, you know, now that, you know, people are kind of aware of it, they might be able to they'll, they'll be looking for it. And mm-hmm. I think that's that's amazing. I think what's really cool and so important is that experts like Marianne are, are open to talking to someone who's not an expert at all. They're, but they, they're just interested and they're enthusiastic and they're encouraging in their outreach. And I think that's so important to be open to anyone who's interested because there's a lot of people who could really help discover and and turn up new information. And we have to just kind of respect the fact that even though they may not be experts, their their enthusiasm, their awareness, and I'm definitely not an expert in in anything, are, are valuable and should be respected. Yeah, that's been one of the biggest surprises to me in engaging with the community. I mentioned earlier that we'd circle back to this concept of projects And that's one of the beautiful things about the platform that's been created is that people can use it in very creative ways. From your observation in working with the community, maybe there's some interesting success stories or uh, or maybe not even, maybe they aren't successful yet, but they're starting to collect and they're on a trajectory to to discovery or, or pardon my wording, I'm stumbling over that a little bit, but I'm curious what you've seen in your engagement with the community from a project standpoint that's caught your eye. I honestly don't use projects that much, although people love them, but they're a well-run project can be a really, really great way to engage the people. Obviously, you know, the big one, and this is not something that iNaturalist organizes, which again is, 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 it's cool that people are just using iNaturalist, is the City Nature Challenge, which happens every April. It started out as a rivalry between the citizen science departments, or I should say community science departments between the Cal Academy and the Natural History Museum of Los Angeles as kind of a friendly competition about who could record more biodiversity in each area. Um, unfortunately, Los Angeles won, but we did we, we got them a few years after that. It spread to, I think, 14 cities in the United States the next year and 60-something. I think this year was well over 100 cities. And it's just like a few days of people within a, 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 an urban area recording everything they see. Uh, My Naturals isn't the only platform they use, but it's the, it's the one that is most used. And I think that's just a great way to, to get people kind of out and engaged and realizing that, that even if they don't live in a quote unquote natural area, there's plenty to see. And kind of going with that theme, there's the Never Home Alone project, which I think is run mainly by a, a man named Rob Dunn. Um, they've written a book about it. And I think he was featured in the New York Times, but they have a project called Never Home Alone, where you could post anything living in your house. I think it's just animals, not plants. They passed, I think, 10,000 observations this year or last year, and they kind of did a little analysis of it. And they found like of the top 20 organisms that people posted, they were found like all over the world. Like there are these organisms that just like living with people, but there are also like certain areas where certain organisms are commonly found in a house, but they haven't kind of been transported all over the world. And so I think it's a really interesting way to think about it. You know, growing up in, growing up in Hawaii, there are bugs in our house all the time. We live right by a huge forest. It was raining all the time. That, that drives the kind of the insects and the centipedes in and so for me, it was never something that's like, oh my God, there's something in the house and they don't belong here. We weren't happy to have roaches or centipedes in the house, but it, 
you realize that if you're living in a nice place to live, there are many other things like to live there as well. And, and you have to kind of learn to deal with that. <laughs> um, and so I think that helps people kind of open their eyes to what's in their house. And actually during the pandemic, we've been kind of, people have been putting these kind of virtual or di socially distanced bow blitzes where they'll say like, okay, on, you know, on April 17th, you know, you can join this project and you can go out and make as many observations as you want and, and they'll show up in this project so we can see what people are finding all over the world on this day. And I think that it's given people a lot of kind of an incentive to go out because they're, they kind of feel like they're part of this community, uh, sub-community of iNaturalist, mm -hmm. which I think is really important. We've been getting donations at the end of the year and some people write comments and so many people have said that iNat has helped them throughout the pandemic because... You know, it helps them kind of have a purpose or when they're going outside for a walk or they can, you know, look through observations, you know, when they're stuck at home. And I think it really, it really provides a way for them to engage with nature, even if they're not, can't be around other people while they're outside. I think it took me too long in life to realize that having something to look forward to is really important to well-being. And I've been using iNaturalist in that way, like, you know, creating little challenges or, uh, you know, I have a, a personal goal to photograph as many backyard wildlife species as I can. Yes, you know, so that's that's much in the same way. And uh, I was going to mention a couple interesting projects that I stumbled across that that sort of opened my eyes. Like you talked about the tracking the newts um, that have been getting run over by cars. Maybe a slightly more positive one. I, I was recently told about this project called Bird Food, and it's observations of birds eating something. And uh, you know, it just it got me to realize that there's probably uh, a lot to learn, you know, from collecting observations like that. Another cool one, I just, I just remembered, uh, there's, I think at least two of these, but it's basically like, one is called Arthropod with the A-R-T capitals. And that's kind of like places where you can submit photos of, of quote unquote art made by arthropods. So like the galleries in wood that beetle larvae make as they munch through it, or, you know, a termite, termite mound or anything like that. And so it's kind of a, an interesting way to, it's a way to collect observations, obviously, without that INAT filters don't work because it's a little more subject, subjective, but it's a great way to, to look at these observations, not just from a scientific perspective, but an aesthetic perspective, which I think is really cool. Mm -hmm. um, and I, wanna, I just want to put a shout out to my, <laughs> I like to make silly projects. And one of mine is, I think, organisms on or near appropriate signs. So like it was spurred by a great observation of the day of a peregrine falcon. I think it was eating like a, 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 an urban bird and it was sitting on like an, a parking sign that's an early bird special i just couldn't believe it so every so every so often like <laughs> or the, people submit photos of, like kingfishers sitting on signs that say no fishing and it's kind of a fun little project that i made that i just made a lark and then people started adding to it <laughs> like i check in every so often and it's like whoa like people actually know about this and they want to contribute it's amazing i might have one or two i could contribute as you you've been really generous with your time i do want to wrap up with a couple of kind of standard questions i like to ask everyone mainly sure. because I'm interested in it personally. So I'm going to be selfish <laughs> with these questions. So as much as I love INAT you know, and all the information that, that it provides and all of the online resources that exist for learning more about nature, I also really like field guides and nature reference books, uh, you know, the physical books. I'm wondering, do you have any favorites that you've encountered? I'm not a big field guide person, unfortunately, <laughs> but um, I did get one. I think it was like Lizards of the Desert Southwest, full is title. This, I got one. Is this it? Here? Yes, that one. Yeah. It's got beautiful photography. Um, you know, lizards always hold a special place in my heart. And so when I go to the desert, I just love watching them. And that one just got, like I said, the photos are really good. It's very photo oriented. And I really enjoy that one. Um, mm -hmm. 
It's one of my favorites. That's why it's right next to me here. Yeah, on the nice. Shelf. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I already mentioned it, and, and uh, you know, I am a friend of Christian Schwarz, but uh, the book can Noah Siegel wrote uh, Mushrooms of the Redwood Coast is really great. And again, it has tons of great photos. It, it's it's big, and it's got a ton of great information on it. And I need to use it more because. Hopefully now that it's raining and I can actually get out and photograph some mushrooms, I can start keying things out because that's something I need to learn a lot more about. Yeah, those are kind of the two I'm really into. A few online ones, California Herps by Gary Nafis is just a great, great resource for California reptiles and amphibians. There are so many, he has these really great comparison pages, like showing showing you how to differentiate similar looking species that are just really invaluable. I link to those a lot when I add IDs. And actually, one that's really important that I find really great is Bug Guide has a, a spider eye arrangement page. And spiders, you know, it's, it's hard to get to genus or species, but you can usually get to family by looking at the way that their eyes are arranged. And they, that page has some really nice clear diagrams of the different eye arrangements of each family. And so that's really helpful because spiders are really tough. And spiders are also the ones that people want to know, you know the most. Like, you know, is it going to kill me? What species is this? And you know, any, anything you do to help people, I think is really important. Mm-hmm. So yeah, those are, sorry, I'm not a huge field guide person, but those are kind of the ones I, I can recommend. Oh, it's quite all right. I sometimes question why I'm interested in it personally, when there's so much great online resource that you can just carry around basically in your pocket on your phone. I don't know. It's just something about a well-constructed guide for me, uh, that, uh, uh I really enjoy. So in your travels, either, you know, physically or virtually, you know, as you engage with the public, what, what do you think, if you could pick one, what's the most important ecological concept that you wish that the general public knew about that perhaps they don't? I was thinking about this. It's probably less of a concept. One thing I, I feel pretty strongly about is not anthropomorphizing nature. I think so many people, and, you know, obviously we're humans, so we look at things from that perspective, but I think so many people will look at, like, a wasp that, you know, that, <laughs> that will cut off the legs of a spider, paralyze it, and feed the still living spider to its young. As a human, we're like, this is the most horrible thing. This is an evil creature. And, you know, no good can ever come of this creature when that's not really, I think, an accurate or helpful way to look at, at nature. We really have to kind of look at it on its own terms and try as much as we can to, to not enforce our own preconceptions and, and cultural notions onto nature. To me, I find that even more wondrous, like that there's this whole world that has nothing to do with people. It's kind of glorious that it's its own thing. And I don't have to worry about whether it's right or wrong. It's just, it just is. And it's interesting and it's beautiful, even if I may find some things kind of repugnant and and scary. Wow. That's really insightful. I've mainly thought about anthropomorphizing in the context of research and how it might potentially impact outcomes of that research. But what you say is really interesting. I guess it's more open-minded less judgmental, probably has parallels to how people should treat each other. In fact, it's uh, something interesting that I'll need to mull over some more. Yeah. And like, you know, I think a lot of us, a lot of people will be, they'll see a photo of like a a hawk eating a bird, but you know, people also find hawks really beautiful when they're not eating birds. And it's like, you have to, you have to take one with the other. If you're going to like hawks, you have to like, you have to sort of appreciate the fact that they are also predators who kill and, and eat things. Right. As the famous quote says, when we try to pick out anything by itself, we find it's hitched to everything else in the universe. I guess that's sort of the same thing. Yeah, yeah. And what have you found to be most effective in helping people kind of ascend the ladder of environmental awareness and care? Like, you know, I think a lot of people like to comment that 
if you don't know about something, you aren't going to care about it. And people are at different levels of that ladder all the time. And one of the one of my goals here with this show is both to personally learn how to help people ascend that ladder, but hopefully also impart some wisdom on listeners so they can do the same in their lives. Yes, I mean, I'm going to come at this from the perspective of someone who has a years of experience of trying to help people appreciate snakes and spiders, which is kind of a passion of mine. So it's definitely coming from the perspective of like an, an interpreter and an educator. The concepts and the facts are important, but I think if you are talking to someone and trying to help them, you know, appreciate nature more, a lot of that is is modeling and, and passion. So if you are enthusiastic about something and you can get across why it's important, why you care about it, I think that that goes a long, long way to cracking open some people's shells that they have. On social media, like someone will post a photo of a snake and you'll see like 10 people go, nope, nope. And it's almost just like performative, like I'm not supposed to like snakes because snakes are, everyone tells me snakes are bad. And so I'm gonna write nope and everyone's gonna know that I'm part of this like group that doesn't like snakes, which is <laughs> something that really bothers me. But when I've done like fairs and I've had like a snake or a lizard out, a lot of people who are scared at first, they'll come over and they'll, and they'll touch it. And they, they've said this to me, like, I, I was a little worried at first, but you seem so enthusiastic about it and so passionate about it that I figure it's okay. And I don't think I'm any, you know, great shakes as an educator. I think I'm, I'm fine. But um, if you can get that across to people, a lot of times that breaks down these kind of, these hesitations that people have about learning about nature and caring about it. And in my experience, that's been really important as someone who tries to do outreach. Um, and, you know, and someone like, someone like Evan that we talked about, he's just passionate about flies. Not everyone is. But to, you know, be around someone or, or, or get advice from someone who is that passionate, it kind of helps you believe that maybe you can do that as well. And it's really, really important. So do you have any upcoming projects uh, that you would like to highlight personally? Not really. <laughs> I don't think so. I think just, uh, just weathering a storm until, um, until we can are able to kind of get back going and traveling. I, I was extremely privileged last year to travel to a bunch of places and just meet the most incredible, generous people. Like wherever I went, they took me out to amazing places and taught me about the local ecology. What I'd like to do eventually is to, is to profile more iNatural users because there's just so many amazing people. I think it'd be great to share everyone's story. So maybe that's a long-term project. Yeah. It's not, 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 not upcoming at the moment. And then if people want to follow you or iNaturalist, I, I, there's probably a, a hundred different places they can go. What do you want to highlight breadcrumbs to follow? I have an Instagram account, um, Tony Iwani, just one word. But I try, I've been trying to use Facebook products less and less. You can find me on Flickr at Tony's Photos, T-O-N-Y-S-F-O-T-O-S. That's usually where I try to post my better photos. Um, I, I do nature photos and also street photography. And then, and then iNaturalist is the main social network I use. So that's T-I-W-A-N-E. I have written some pieces for Bay Nature, mostly for Ask the Naturalist. And those, have been, mm -hmm. those were a lot of fun. Yeah, I've read a few of those. They're really good. So I'll, uh, I'll make sure to include those links. And for people looking to get started with iNaturalist, there's a million get starting guides out there. Do you have any that you could share with me that I could link to so that uh, just to kind of help people, you know, maybe quick start? We have our getting started guide. So you can link to that and the videos that I made. If you're not sick of my voice, you can watch some of those. We have some tutorials. That's Those are probably the, the main ones for getting started. On the, on our forum, forum.inaturals.org, I think one of the one of the most valuable things there is how to hack 
the search URLs for iNaturalist. You can search using kind of the graphical interface on the website, but there's a lot of like search parameters in the in the URL that you can kind of add and, and adjust to kind of give you more search options. And that's a really, really good resource if you really want to start diving deep into exploring our naturalist observations. All right. Well, thank you uh, for all of those. And before we close for today, is there anything else that you wanted to add? No, I just I really appreciate what you do. I hope I may had some interesting answers for people. And I just hope that people, uh, you know, stay, stay safe and get outside and connect with nature any way they can this year. Here, here. All right. Thank you, Tony. Thanks. We live in a world where sound bites dominate and true understanding is shrinking. Nature's Archive podcast digs a little bit deeper, hoping to help the world understand nature just a little bit more. I hope that this podcast has planted a seed of interest that will grow into something special for you. I record, produce, edit, and publish a show by myself as a personal passion. If you enjoyed the show, please rate it on iTunes or your favorite podcast service, and then please turn around and share this episode with a friend or a family member that you think might like it. I'm not asking for money or donations, just a gift of sharing. Thanks for your support. You can also follow me on Instagram at Nature's Archive or Facebook, also Nature's Archive. In addition to sharing information about podcasts at those locations, I also share some of my photography and some short explanations of what I'm seeing. Lastly, if you have any suggestions for guests or topics for me to cover, please email me at naturesarchivepodcast at gmail.com. Thank you. And one last word, I want to make sure to give credit to the music that you hear in the podcast. The opening song is called Fearless First by Kevin McLeod, and the closing song is called Beauty Flow, also by Kevin McLeod. You can find his work at incompetech.filmmusic.io.